Welcome to Working for Women, the independent women's forum podcast, where we are changing the conversation about women and public policy for the better. Hello, I'm Hadley Heath Manning, Director of Policy at the Independent Women's Forum. Today, I'm here with Erin Hawley, an Associate Professor of Law at the University of Missouri and our legal fellow at IWF. And today we're going to be discussing Erin's most recent legal brief for IWF, uh, which is titled Rethinking the Administrative State. Welcome, Erin. Thanks so much for having me, Hadley. Glad to be here. Sure. So first, uh, before we rethink the administrative state, can you explain for our listeners what that term means? What is or who is the administrative state? Absolutely. So you do hear this term administrative state sort of bandied about the media. And what it is really referring to is the federal agencies. So if you look at our federal government, there are hundreds of agencies located um, across uh, the government uh, made up of uh, unelected bureaucrats. And if we look at what these agencies do and what they're made up of, uh, we've got uh, federal employees who perform a whole host of functions. So they're housed within a federal agency, uh, the uh, Environmental Protection Agency for one, uh, Health and Human Services uh, Agency to name another. And these uh, different federal employees have different roles within these agencies. Uh, So the administrative in part uh, is made up of agencies that promulgate rules and regulations. Uh, So this part of uh, an agency will develop the rules uh, that apply, for example, health and human services, uh, determines what's required uh, by the Obamacare uh, insurance plans. uh, Federal uh, agencies uh, make up those rules. Uh, Other parts of federal agencies actually adjudicate disputes involving those rules. Um, So they will, uh, say, come to a workplace and say, I think we've violated some different OSHA regulations on how your workplace is supposed to function. And so there will be sort of a judicial proceeding that takes place within uh, that agency. Uh, And uh, they also have uh, enforcement authority. So you have this vast uh, federal bureaucracy, the administrative state, that's really performing a whole host of functions. And as we'll discuss, that's one of the problems with the administrative state is that you've got uh, rolled up within it uh, federal employees who are writing law, basically. They're writing regulations that have the force of law. Uh, Then they are interpreting those regulations to particular cases, to particular individuals and businesses. Uh, And then they're also enforcing those regulations uh, against those individuals and businesses. So short answer um, is that uh, the administrative state is made up of federal agencies, hundreds of those located throughout the federal government. Um, but there's a whole host of responsibilities and powers uh, that are rolled up within the administrative state. So maybe some of our listeners are listening to this and they're thinking, well, that sounds like a a normal thing. I mean, this is the way that it's been for some time now. So uh, why do you argue uh, in this most recent legal brief for IWF that we need to rethink the administrative state? In other words, why should our listeners care about this issue? What's wrong with the way that things are going right now? I think it's really important to think about the administrative state because we need to think about who it is that is making uh, these sorts of decisions, monumental decisions, many of them uh, for the American people. Uh, As the late Justice Scalia said, when you think about the administrative state and administrative deference, uh, the question really is who we are governed by. So is it, as our civics teachers taught us, that we are governed uh, by uh, sort of a tripartite government where it's Congress that makes the law? Um, if, if you are in conflict with that law, then you're brought into court uh, and you have an Article Three judge who adjudicates that dispute. Uh, 
Um, and then, of course, you also have the executive branch uh, who enforces the law or brings brings that lawsuit. So in order to curtail liberty, in order for uh, government uh, to act against an individual or a business, you need to have each of the three branches, Congress, uh, the executive, and the judicial branch sort of all play their own constitutional part uh, within uh, that system. Uh, but what we have in the administrative branch is all of those uh, powers combined uh, within a single agency. And this is really concerning if we think about uh, the accountability of federal agencies. Most of these uh, employees who are uh, within agencies are unelected. Of course, all of them are unelected, um, and many of them are unaccountable. There are uh, agencies have some accountability at the highest levels uh, to the executive, but they, uh, of course, are never elected. Uh, the people uh, never have a chance to vote on administrators um, who make the laws uh, that affect uh, or make the regulations with the effective law that affect uh, daily decisions uh, uh, in, in basically any capacity you can think of. We have a federal regulation who, that governs that conduct, uh, and yet the American people never really have a chance to say, you know, we're disappointed in that regulation uh, as they can uh, when you've got a law written by Congress. There's less accountability uh, with the administrative state, uh, less transparency, and I think that really is a problem when we think about how we're governed. Yeah, I remember when I was really young, I used to watch these videos. They were uh, animated, and it was part of the Schoolhouse Rock America series. And one of my favorites was uh, about the three-ring circus, and it compared the three co-equal branches of government to three rings in a circus. And sometimes I think what's happening in D.C. is a lot like a circus, but uh, at least those three branches were designed to have sort of those checks and balances that we learn about in civics class and, and what you're describing. Um but I think what's missing, um, at least in my mind, and maybe with some of the American public, is sort of the history of how we got to where we are today. Because we learn about the founding, and we learn about the design, and we see where we are today, and we see what's happening with the administrative state, who maybe is um, you know, messing up this idea of separated powers and checks and balances. But can you explain you know, how did we get to this point? Absolutely. And to pick up just for a second on sort of the, the framers design, uh, you're absolutely correct, as we've talked a little bit about the three separate spheres. So separated powers uh, means that the, the framers uh, intended to separate the core governmental powers against three separate and equal branches so that they could check one another so that this would be liberty enhancing. Uh, and I think it's often overlooked when you're talking about uh, the Constitution, how important these structural provisions are. Because the framers recognized that there were a number of, of uh, very uh, good documents uh, purporting to protect individual rights, very much like our own Bill of Rights uh, throughout the world at the time of the founding. Uh, they protected things like religious liberty. Uh, they said the you know, monarch shall not have absolute power, those sorts of things, uh, protections that, that you think would be very uh, vital uh, to government. But it turns out that those protections were really worthless unless there was some sort of structural provision uh, to divide power. Because if you have absolute power, uh, then those provisions really are, are not worth the paper they're written on. So I think the genius of the American Constitution really is in its structure. It's the structure that allows us to preserve uh, the individual freedoms contained within the Bill of Rights. So that's sort of the, the founders' visions, these separate branches, and, and again, also separated by the federal government and the state government. So they really wanted to divide up power. Um, but then you see uh, in the progressive period, uh, you see individuals who are really enthusiastic about sort of government by the experts. Uh, so their view of government is that we don't really like 
a, a Republican form of government in the sense of uh, representing the people. It's actually much more efficient, better if we are governed uh, by experts. So some of these thinkers, uh, Wilson, Ten one thought that the constitutional constraints on separation of powers really just hindered or limited government. So their view was that we should invest uh, this sort of impartial uh, expert uh, with more power. Uh, they even described, you know, combining uh, the executive power, combining uh, the power to formulate these rules, combining the lawmaking power, and combining the judicial power, and wrapping these all up within this one branch uh, in order to make government more efficient. Well, this might make government more efficient. Um, as we see today, Congress um, can certainly pass um, a few laws, basically somewhere around 100 uh, substantive laws per year. Uh, and then these federal agencies promulgate thousands of substantive regulations uh, that implement uh, these laws. So it might be more efficient um, if we have uh, sort of experts uh, who are uh, tasked with uh, interpreting and promulgating rules and applying them to individuals, but you do really lose out on that separation of powers, that structural constitution that was crucial uh, to the framers' design. Um, and so I think efficiency uh, might be served in some instances, might not in, in others, but in all events, it's not a... Uh, a substitute or a reason uh, to discard the structural protection. You're talking about uh, these uh, experts, and uh, all I can think of are the the words from Reagan. He said the nine most terrifying <laughs> words are, uh, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. <laughs> it sounds like uh, <laughs> yes, yes. You know, when you're talking about these experts that are govern us, uh, govern, going to govern us, that's what I think about. But um, another thing that I hear about, it's a term that it gets tossed around, and it was actually something that came up in 2014 in a Supreme Court case that was um, very relevant to the debate over Obamacare and specifically the subsidies that are available to people who buy Obamacare plans, um, was, was the term Chevron deference. And you mentioned Chevron. You actually discuss it uh, in depth in this legal brief that you've written for IWF. Um, so can you explain what Chevron deference is and how it fits into this um, conversation about the administrative state today? Absolutely. So Chevron um, deference comes out of a 1984 case by that same name, Chevron. Um, and in that decision, the Supreme Court sort of laid down a rule for uh, analyzing a regulation. So in the ordinary course, Congress will pass a statute. Um, and now we know uh, since the uh, New Deal and since uh, this progressive uh, sort of revolution, we have administrative agencies who in large part implement that statute by promulgating regulations. Well, what the Supreme Court did in the 1984 case of Chevron was say, well, we're going to sort of assume that if Congress is silent on an issue in a, in a statute, that they intended to delegate that uh, sort of interpretive authority to an agency. So we as a court are going to defer to that agency's interpretation uh, of the statute. So that sounds sort of reasonable if we're going to assume um, that Congress intends for the agencies to implement its policies. If Congress doesn't say anything, uh, then uh, we'll sort of give uh, a broad reins to the agency uh, to implement that policy. But again, this looks a little problematic if we are thinking about the separation of powers, because of course it's for Congress uh, to write the law, uh, not a federal agency um, who's not even in the Constitution, uh, of course. And so what we have with uh, Chevron deference is we have the court saying, 
we are not going to interpret the law, which is our duty under Article 3. Um, instead, we are going to defer to agencies. And this is really key in the face of congressional silence. So what you get with Chevron is if Congress says nothing about an issue, then the courts are required to defer to an agency's interpretation of that issue. So you really have, in that instance, you have Congress that's silent, you have the Supreme Court whose hands are, are tied uh, in deference, and so it really leaves broad policy discretion to an agency uh, on critical questions of law. Uh, again, something you think might not square uh, exactly with the framers' design. It sounds like from all that you're describing that we have a problem today with the administrative state simply uh, being too powerful and kind of wrecking this uh, beautiful design that the founders put together for the three uh, co-equal and separate branches of government. So I guess um, in an effort to end the podcast on a positive note, can you give us some reasons uh, for hope? What can be done about this? Are we just supposed to give up and say, well, nice run, America? Or is there a way to sort of get our government back on track, um, back closer to this original design? You know, I think that the Supreme Court really uh, will uh, be an ally in coming years uh, in thinking about how we can reshape the administrative state. The Supreme Court has been um, sort of practical in acknowledging that a good deal of our government uh, takes place at the administrative level. Uh, and in all honesty, that's probably not going to go away tomorrow. But a number of justices have expressed growing concerns with certain aspects of the administrative state. Certain justices are very concerned about the consolidation of all of the government powers within this single agency. Um, others are concerned particularly about Chevron deference or this idea that if Congress says nothing, uh, then the federal courts are supposed to let the agencies sort of do what they wish uh, with a regulation. Um, in particular, I think one reason to hope is that the new justice, the newest justice, Justice Neil Gorsuch, has been particularly outspoken and sort of critical of the idea both of consolidated agency powers and in particular the Chevron doctrine. He wrote a case uh, just a few years ago in which, in, in 2016, actually, in which he suggested uh, that Chevron deference may be uh, contrary to federal statute. Uh, that's the Administrative Procedure Act, which requires the courts to interpret statutes not uh, to leave that to agencies, and also counter to sort of these foundational principles, the separation of powers ideas that we've been talking about today. So I do think there is reason to hope that the Supreme Court is uh, getting uh, troubled by the uh, breadth and depth uh, of the administrative state today, and I think that Justice Gorsuch will be a, a keen ally and keenly interested in those sorts of issues uh, at the Supreme Court. Well, there you go. There's a there's a high note, something to, to look for and look forward to and be hopeful about. Thank you so much, Erin, for being our guest today on the Independent Women's Forum podcast. Uh, to those of you who listen to this podcast, thank you for tuning in. You can read Erin's legal brief on our website, iwf.org. It's called Rethinking the Administrative State. And thanks again, Erin Hawley, for being our guest. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give it a thumbs up, share it on social media, or stop by iwf.org for similar content.